0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio
1: nerds. It's Ahmed and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember... We are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100%
2: HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the CardioNerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission consider supporting us on Patreon.com forward slash CardioNerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also excited to grow the platform by mentoring the next generation of CardioNerds. We are establishing the CardioNerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as CardioNerds fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. And now, without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing CardioNerds colleagues. We are in Texas again, this time Austin, Texas. We could not be more excited. I have never been. I've got to go and definitely will definitely get back there when traveling becomes a thing again. So we are with an incredible group of motivated and unbelievable people. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves?
3: Hi, Amit and Dan. Thank you so much for having us on your Cardio Nerds podcast. We'd be thrilled to have you guys come and visit us in Austin. But right now, I guess we're doing virtual, but definitely in person soon. I'm Priya Kapapali. I'm a PGY5 cardiology fellow at UT Austin Dell Medical School. My interests are interventional cardiology with a specific focus on intravascular imaging and physiology guided PCI.
4: Hey guys, big fan. My name is Sergio Montaño. I'm a PGY-5 at UT Austin Dell Medical Center. My interests are interventional cardiology with a focus on structural heart disease. And when I'm not in the cath lab, I'm usually out running about on the various trails that we have here in Austin.
5: Thanks again, guys, for having us. My name is Mike Riscoviak. I'm one of the first-year cardiology fellows here at Dell Seton Medical Center. And my interests currently are also uh, interventional cardiology. I'm undifferentiated specifically what I want to do within that. And then outside of cardiology, I like to mainly experiment with plant-based recipes with my wife.
1: Awesome. Guys, Michael, Sergio, Priya, it is so wonderful to have you all join us from UT Austin. And honestly, I wish I'd been to Austin. I've heard so many great things about the city. It's definitely on my roster for after the pandemic, but take me to your city. What do you guys love about Austin? Where do I just have to visit? And and where do you want to sit down to have our conversation today?
4: Absolutely. There are many things. If you love the outdoors, we have plenty of things to do. If you happen to be here in October or March, you can go to one of our world-renowned music festivals, ACL or South by. What we like to do is we really like to spend time on Lake Travis, enjoying the sunset and enjoying the water. So that's where we want to take you guys today. All right. I love it. So we are sitting next to Lake
1: Travis, enjoying the evening, soaking it all in, talking about our love for cardiology. You guys have a cake for us?
2: Wait, before we do, are we on the river bank or are we like floating in there or we have our feet in the water?
3: <laughs> <laughs> so we're on the lake. So we're taking you guys on a speedboat to the middle of Lake Travis and we have a lily pad floating on the water and we're hanging off the edge talking about our favorite cardiology topics because that's what we do every weekend when we have time.
1: Oh, how adventurous. I, I thought we were like sitting on a picnic table on the lakeside, but this is even better. I love it.
3: You like the immersive. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: this is amazing.
4: Make, yes, you, this is- make sure you bring your sunscreen, guys.
2: It's important. <laughs> I brought my sunscreen and I recently gave myself a pedicure. So I'm really excited to show up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just hoping that the pace of the case matches the pace of our speedboat. Excellent. Oh, it will. So what do we have?
3: So guys, I've been dying to tell you about this very interesting patient case that I saw a couple of weeks ago. We actually had a pretty sick patient come to the ICU after having a TAVR valve put in. Just to set the stage, I wanted to tell you a little bit about this patient's history. So she's a 71-year-old woman who was referred to the Multidisciplinary Valve Clinic for severe symptomatic aortic stenosis. Do you guys have any sense of the cardinal symptoms that we would see with severe aortic stenosis?
5: Yeah, so with patients with severe aortic stenosis, some of the main symptoms that they present with are shortness of breath, dizziness, and presyncope, and also chest pain.
3: That's exactly right, and that's exactly what this patient came into clinic with. This patient also had multiple other medical problems, including diabetes, a history of coronary artery disease with recent stent placement to the left anterior descending artery and the right coronary artery, as well as multiple other medical issues requiring medications. And so this patient was evaluated in a multidisciplinary fashion with cardiology and cardiac surgery, and a TAVR workup was performed.
5: So what's some of the things, Priya, that we want to do in a TAVR workup?
3: Basically, whenever we see a patient with these kind of symptoms and we are concerned about severe aortic stenosis, we always start with a transthoracic echocardiogram, which gives us a window into the patient's heart. We get a lot of very useful information about the heart structure and the heart's physiology. And so that was one of the first things that we do. Anybody want to talk about the diagnostic features of severe aortic stenosis by ECHO?
5: I would love to. So the main way to remember it is 44 and 1. So you would have a mean gradient greater than 40 millimeters of mercury, a peak velocity of greater than four meters per second, and then an aortic valve area of less than one centimeter squared.
3: That's exactly right, Mike. And so the other important piece of information that sometimes we don't necessarily gain by transthoracic echo is the valve morphology. So we want to know, is this a tri-leaflet aortic valve?
4: And if you are looking for more information, you can always reference back to episode one and two of Cardio Nerds, where they go into detail on severe aortic stenosis.
2: Amazing. Yeah. If you can't tell, we love aortic stenosis because it really is such a quintessential disease process that highlights so many amazing things about cardiology, the structure and function and the long-term consequences, short-term hemodynamics. And so actually when we were deciding how to start the show, aortic stenosis was our go-to because we knew that was a good way to start. And thanks for referencing that and plugging that. And you guys are amazing and we really love you.
1: One of the reasons we love aortic stenosis is that the management paradigm, the way it's evolved over the past really decade and a half has been such a revolution and really shows how exciting cardiology is in so many ways. Since the first TAVR was placed in 2002, it's really supplanted surgical aortic valve replacements for a huge proportion of patients. And we really started out with inoperable patients and then high-risk patients. And this patient is, I'll say, an intermediate-risk patient in whom we are pretty confident that we essentially took for granted that we're going down a TAVR evaluation. It sounds like there are a lot of comorbidities here, and there was a full multidisciplinary valve heart team discussion about TAVR. I just want to take a pause and realize that five years ago, this option may not have been available for this patient. And so really, it's amazing how the fields progressed.
3: Absolutely. And TAVR continues to have expanded applications. And so we are seeing that more and more patients are being referred for TAVR evaluations. And we found that it's incredibly important to have them evaluated in a multidisciplinary option so we can fully inform the patient and also do the proper workup to come up with the best treatment option based on patient and patient preference. And so, uh, like you mentioned, this patient did have an STS mortality risk score of about 5%, which puts her in an intermediate risk category for surgery. But on frailty assessment, using an EFT score, the patient's score was 3, indicating frailty. And based on this intermediate to high risk on multiple factors and the patient's preference to have a minimally invasive procedure, we did proceed with TAVR in this case.
1: Yeah, that's just amazing. And so you were going down the rest of the pre-TAVR evaluation?
3: Yes, absolutely. So the rest of the pre-TAVR evaluation really includes a thorough assessment of the patient's heart. So we do a left heart catheterization to ensure that there's no significant coronary disease that needs to be revascularized, as well as measuring invasive hemodynamics in the event that there's uncertainty about the true severity of the stenosis. In this patient, her left heart catheterization revealed that Her previously placed stents in the left anterior descending artery and right coronary artery were widely patent. There was no significant obstructive disease in the remaining vessels. And by invasive measurements, her aortic valve area was calculated to be 0.8 centimeters squared. And the aortic valve mean gradient was calculated to be 45 millimeters of mercury, confirming that the patient had severe aortic stenosis. The other really important things to know about this patient are what does her baseline EKG look like? We always want to know what rhythm the patient is in, in this case, normal sinus rhythm, if the patient has any evidence of conduction delays, such as AV block or bundle branch block, and in this case, the patient did not. The other things that we look at are the iliofemoral vasculature to plan access site for the TAVR procedure, so CTA is routinely performed in these patients as well.
4: So one of the things that we often overlook is patient preference. So having a patient-centered discussion with a multidisciplinary approach like our valve clinic, which is a great learning opportunity for trainees like ourselves, but really focusing on what the patient wants to accomplish with this intervention is key and of utmost importance.
2: Yes, the preoperative workup for TAVR is just so incredible, but it really highlights that for so much of structural cardiology planning is just so essential to really get the most out of what you're doing for your patient and to really optimize success of the procedure and also to avoid complications. That's a highlight that we see with a lot of these structural cardiologies, the interventional cardiology, and it's everything from zooming out to your patient's comorbidities all the way down to the nitty-gritty calcium at the iliofemoral arteries. It's got to be done well, and it's not something you just jump in and just, oh, let's put in a tavern.
3: Exactly. So if you guys want to dive in now to what actually happened in the hospital with this patient, I would love to share and get some opinions from you guys.
4: Yes, please. I I can't wait. This water is getting me all ready for this case.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Basically, this patient who we evaluated in a very thorough fashion was admitted to the hospital for a planned TAVR implantation. The patient had a pretty unremarkable interprocedural course with successful implantation of a 29-millimeter Medtronic Evolute Pro valve via the left common femoral artery And post-procedure, while the patient was receiving protamine after an initial test, the patient developed this very profound hypotension and subsequently developed a PEA arrest requiring CPR for four minutes. Return of spontaneous circulation was achieved. The patient was neurologically intact post-arrest, and the patient was treated for a suspected protamine reaction with high-dose steroids and epinephrine very appropriately. However, the patient still remained hypotensive with MAPs in the 50s on high-dose epinephrine, norepinephrine, and vasopressin support. Then she was transferred to the ICU for further evaluation and management. So, guys, we we have this very challenging patient, and she just came to the ICU. What are some of the things that you think about, and what's the next thing that you would do in the setting?
4: Yeah, I think I would definitely keep the differential broad. You're you're definitely concerned if there might be any sort of coronary obstruction with calcium displacement, maybe mechanical obstruction from the native leaflets or the valve. Aortic dissection is always a possibility. An air embolism, annular and aortic rupture, as well as LV perforation, just because of what we were doing and where we were with instrumentation. Pericardial effusion, tamponade, those are on my differential. Uh, Valve dysfunction, having severe AI or a paravalvular leak as well as mitral valve injury, which could occur in in such a setting. And then valve embolism, axis site complications, major blood loss, protamine reaction, arrhythmias, cardiogenic shock, typically seen when we pace very fast while we're implanting the valve, and even pulmonary
5: embolism. So that's a very extensive differential, Sergio. Where would you recommend going from here? We have a lot of really important differentials on that list. So what's your first thing that you're going to do with this patient?
1: That was a wonderful differential and really highlights all the ways in which something like this can go wrong. And that's why structural heart disease and the management thereof is a high stakes game. This is also why The pre-procedure planning in all of the studies and the multidisciplinary discussions are so important because there are so many ways that things can go wrong. So just thinking about and reflecting back to a lot of the workup that Priya had outlined, one is the EKG. This patient had a self-expanded valve place. There is a risk of injuring the conduction system, the left bundle. And so if a patient goes in with a known right bundle branch block, you have a risk of inducing complete heart block. And so that's just one example. We get the TAVR protocol CT for a number of reasons, right? We get uh, understanding of the iliofemoral axis for TF TAVR. And so if that access is compromised, you can have vascular complications and bleeding. We also use that same TAVR CT if the patient's renal function is adequate or a cardiac protocoled MRI if their renal function is inadequate to understand the annulus and the aortic root anatomy. So one, that's really important for sizing the valve, make sure we're not overdoing it. Taking a look at the calcification around the valve because that may increase the risk for rupture. Looking at the coronary height because depending on the coronary height, you may have an increased risk for obstructing the coronary ostia. So a procedure that I think is just really incredible and shows some of the advanced capabilities in the cath lab is a basilica procedure, where if you anticipate that when you prop open the native leaflets, you may cause obstruction of the coronary ostea, you can actually lacerate the right or the left coronary leaflet depending on which one is a high risk or both. So that way it's splayed open and the coronary osteo remains open. And the coronary angiogram, if there's a high grade blockage in a proximal vessel, then the patient's less likely to tolerate rapid pacing for the valve to go up. This is obviously not an exhaustive list, but it's just to hammer in the point that the pre-procedure planning and all the diagnostics and evaluation we do is so important because there's so many ways in which this can go wrong.
2: Yeah, these acute situations really require different kinds of medicine thinking. And going back to what cardiology is so amazing, you have that cerebral, almost perseverative aspects of cardiology where we can like take time, think through a differential, plan your taver, plan the best approach for a particular patient, go through a differential, but then you have these hair-raising situations that you really need to be trained for in advance and you really need to be thought out in advance. And we just listed a huge differential diagnosis so beautifully when it comes to these acute situations, particularly peri-procedurally, You have your differential, but you also have ways that you're going to assess that. And if you think about it, like whenever you have a shock situation, which is what we are, you know, shock with a potentially end result of cardiac arrest, you, you have your bread and butter differential that you can use as well and really tie into the particulars related to the procedure as you had. You have your low SVR states, which potentially could be related to the protamine. You could have your low volume states like hypovolemic with the bleed, whether it's vascular down below at your femoral access site or annular rupture up top, something central. You have your pump failure and your pump failure has the usual suspects of potentially a coronary occlusion or a valvular anomaly that occurred or potentially obstructive physiology going on within the heart. And then you obviously have your PE and your right-sided issues as well. If you really take the time and hone a really nice differential diagnosis for shock and sudden acute stuff, and you also build into that your plans to assess, whether it's you know, quick echo, POCUS, physical exam, to assess these different entities and lock down where the problem is in your patient's circulation that's leading to this outcome of shock and PARS, you're going to serve yourself really well going forward.
3: Absolutely, Dan. I think this case really highlights the importance of really honing your clinical knowledge and using all the tools in your toolbox that you learn in cardiology training. And so in this kind of patient, the first thing we did was take a look at the patient clinically. What does she look like? What are her vital signs? What was her physical exam? And immediately after, we did a transthoracic echocardiogram on this patient. And so just to go into some of the details, the patient was afebrile. Her heart rate was 90 beats per minute. Blood pressure was 78 over 40 with a MAP of 52. She was satting 97% on minimal vent settings, a PEEP of 5 and an FiO2 of 40%. Her ins and outs, she produced less than 20 cc's of urine over the last hour, and we were lucky in the situation that the patient did come out with an invasive Juan-Ganz catheter, which gives us hemodynamic data. And so just to touch on that, her CVP was normal at 7. Her mean PA pressure was 25. Her pulmonary capillary wedge pressure was 18, and her Fick cardiac output and cardiac index were 2.8 and 1.3, significantly reduced. And we also performed a thermodilution cardiac output and cardiac index, which corroborated with these numbers. Looking at the patient, she was intubated, sedated, ET tube in place without any secretions. She had symmetrical chest expansion, equal air entry bilaterally. Cardiac exam-wise, regular rate and rhythm a normal S1 and S2, no murmurs, rubs, or gallops. She had cool extremities, traced lower extremity edema to the mid-calf bilaterally. And very important in this patient, we checked bilateral femoral axis sites. They were clean, dry, and intact, without evidence of hematoma, and there was no flank bruising. The patient was on medications, including epinephrine at high dose, norepinephrine at high dose and max dose phaso, and also amiodarone, which was started to maintain the patient in normal sinus rhythm. What is something that you guys would want to do next? After looking at this patient, understanding that she is in cardiogenic shock with relatively unremarkable filling pressures, what would you do with this kind of patient on max dose pressors?
5: I think let's get some basic labs, maybe an x-ray, and EKG, and see if that helps us narrow that differential that we have that surgery presented.
3: Absolutely. And what would you guys be looking at on labs? What would you think is the most important thing for this patient?
5: probably the hemoglobin to see if she's having a retroperitoneal bleed or bleeding anywhere else that could be responsible for the shock that she's experiencing. And then also looking at the gas and seeing if there's any acidosis.
2: What do you guys think of the SWAN numbers in this particular patient who's pretty hypoperfused and on really high potent inotropes and vasoconstrictors?
3: So she's profoundly hypoperfusing based on these numbers. Her cardiac index is very low in the setting of relatively normal filling pressures. And so it's an interesting finding because we have a patient here who may be underfilled, if not uvolemic, and has a very significantly low cardiac index. And she did not have a very wide pulse pressure to suggest something like severe aortic insufficiency. She had a relatively narrow pulse pressure, which would go along with the low cardiac output.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. I I see very similar findings. You have a CVP that's seven. It's not flat. She has some filling pressure. So while bleeding is probably an issue, this may point away from bleeding potentially. Her RV seems to be working. We can come back to Pappy, but basically she's generating a reasonable pulse pressure with mild pulmonary hypertension at a mean of 26, but really not out of whack. Her wedge pressure is 18, which is elevated, but it's certainly not low. And it's not extremely elevated that you would expect in somebody with such a low flow state. And by thick, her cardiac index is 1.3, which is just incredibly low. Putting these all together, there's definitely a low flow state. And it's not necessarily because of low volume it's something that's basically pointing towards the heart. And as we talked about with our differential earlier, all the different things like vascular complications and other things that are happening peripherally outside of the heart, pulmonary embolism, which is more of a right heart situation or an obstructive physiology, we're really not seeing this is these hemos are really telling us, wow, there's something going on with the heart here. And we definitely need to figure it out. And it's also something that's pointing to the heart without necessarily that crazy elevated filling pressures, which is not your routine cold and wet cardiogenic shock. So something is going on. This patient's cold, not really sure if she's that wet, and we got to figure this out.
3: Exactly. And in these patients, time is really of the essence. And so quickly understanding the physiology and reacting to that to reverse the disease process is so incredibly important. And so we did our initial evaluation as quickly and thoroughly as we could using all the tools that we have. And as Mike mentioned, we did get some basic labs, which showed a stable hemoglobin, mild acidosis, pH of 7.25, electrolytes were all within acceptable range, BNP was 52, and lactic acid was Significantly elevated. At six. And so we were definitely dealing with a shock kind of picture. Chest x ray on arrival to the ICU did not show any evidence of pneumothorax. ET tube and PA catheter were in appropriate position. And there was some mild pulmonary vascular congestion, but otherwise unrevealing chest x ray. Immediately, because we do worry about things like arrhythmia, especially AV block in this setting, we got an EKG which revealed normal sinus rhythm. The other really useful thing about the EKG is that we can see if there are any really significant ST segment elevations or depressions to suggest a coronary obstruction or a coronary event. The EKG did not show any of those findings. And as we continued to evaluate this patient, we did do a very thorough and rapid chart biopsy of the pre-procedure imaging to see if we could get any clues I think one of the most important things that we recognized on her pre-procedure transthoracic echocardiogram was that yes, the patient did have a normal LV ejection fraction of 60 to 65%, but she did have a pretty small sized LV cavity measuring at 3.7 centimeters at the end of diastole. She also had significantly increased intraventricular septum and left ventricular posterior wall diameters at 1.4 and 1.5 centimeters and no other really significant pathology other than her severe AS. And so keeping that in mind, we decided that the next best step was to do a surface transthoracic echocardiogram in the ICU.
4: So Priya, one of the things I would also like to review is the intraprocedural fluoroscopy and TE that we routinely do for all of our TAVR cases. Do we have access to that information?
3: Absolutely. That is a great idea. So looking at the intraprocedural fluoroscopy, we had images that showed successful implantation of the TAVR valve. And on completion angiogram, there was trace paravalvular leak, no evidence of aortic regurgitation and no evidence of coronary obstruction or aortic dissection. Is there any other imaging that you're interested in?
5: So I know during the procedure, there's usually a TE probe. Do we have anything post-procedurally TE imaging that could maybe help us narrow some of our differential?
3: Yes, absolutely. So post-implant and prior to the cardiac arrest, the TEE showed a well-seated valve prosthesis, confirmed trace paravalvular leak, and showed no evidence of aortic regurgitation or pericardial effusion, which is very important in this kind of setting. And the patient had preserved LV systolic function. Post-arrest, we do have a TEE actually that showed a hyperdynamic LV, if anything, normal RV size, uh, normal RV function, and no other significant findings in terms of the erotic valve or mitral valve.
1: You guys, this is such a beautiful discussion because it's really highlighting all the different, just to go back to the same point, all the different things that can go wrong, but then also all of the different hypothesis-driven, rational, stepwise diagnostic you can do to evaluate for each of those complications one by one. And so you've essentially said, okay, immediately post-procedure, this isn't tamponade, this probably isn't annular rupture, this isn't acute severe aortic regurgitation or paravalvular leak, which can definitely cause acute decompensation. The completion angiogram didn't show coronary obstruction. We don't have evidence to suggest that this is a hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock from a vascular complication. So I applaud you guys for really thinking through very carefully what are the things that could go wrong? And what are the studies we have to evaluate for every single one of those so that way we can do guided management based on that? So this is terrific, but I'm still worried about this patient. She's still hypotensive and we still don't know why. So what, what did you guys do next?
2: Yeah, this speedboat is getting
1: faster and faster. <laughs> I, I asked for a fast-paced case to match the fast-paced speedboat, but uh, you guys have outdone yourselves. <laughs>
3: And so the one other piece of information I wanted to give you guys, because we do want to narrow our differential as quickly as we possibly can, is that post-arrest, while the patient was still in the cath lab, we were able to perform an abdominal aortography through the existing axis site to ensure that there was no evidence of vascular axis site complication. There was no dissection. There was no active contrast extravasation, which was reassuring. The other fluoroscopic information that we obtained was a repeat aortic root angiography, which showed no evidence of... To the eye, coronary obstruction or dissection. So with all of this in mind, what would you guys do next?
4: Yeah, again, this is a very complicated case. And I think that we have a lot of information that we've already worked through. And so I've narrowed down my differential definitely to thinking something is going on inside of the heart. And I want that window to the heart. So let's throw a probe on on this patient and see what's going on.
3: And in the words of our WISE program director, when in doubt, always throw a probe on the chest. And so that's exactly what we did. We did a bedside transthoracic echocardiogram in the ICU. The first thing that we noticed in the parasternal long axis view, which is our first window into the heart, is that the LV cavity was hyperdynamic. There was a near complete obliteration of the mid to distal LV cavity with a significant intracavitary gradient. The RV appeared normal in size and function, and there was no acute valvular pathology that we were able to identify and no pericardial effusion. What do you guys think is the diagnosis in this patient?
4: I I am definitely worried about this patient, but I'm glad that we've done everything that we've done because I think we can now pretty much narrow it down to possibly being like an intracavitary obstruction or outflow obstruction in the heart. I know that she had a protamine reaction and we treated her appropriately with epinephrine, but epinephrine can be worsening that intracavitary gradient. So I'm, I'm worried about suicidal V at this point.
3: Exactly. And that's the diagnosis in this patient, suicide LV.
5: That's fascinating. So what is suicide LV? I've never heard about it.
4: Suicide (laughs) LV? What is that? So I'm glad you guys are asking. Don't get this idea that the LV is just giving up on itself. This is something that we definitely did and can reverse. But Priya, being our expert here, what is suicide LV?
3: suicide LV is basically an unmasking of abnormal intraventricular flow dynamics after you relieve a fixed obstruction in the setting of severe aortic stenosis. So thinking back to what happens to the left ventricle after having exposure to this long-standing severe aortic stenosis, the LV undergoes remodeling. There's myofibrillar hypertrophy that occurs, and the LV cavity has changes in its wall thickness and its contractile properties. So once you actually relieve this fixed obstruction with the SAVR or TAVR, you can actually unmask this abnormal flow dynamic and precipitate obstructive physiology. So what happened in this patient most likely is that the patient's fixed obstruction was relieved. However, the patient unfortunately developed a protamine reaction prompting the use of positive inotropes such as epinephrine to reverse an anaphylactoid reaction. And then that in combination with positive inotropy and systemic vasodilation in the setting of this profound anaphylactic reaction actually precipitated the obstructive physiology that we know as suicide LV.
4: Wow, cardiology is incredible. The physiology here is just amazing.
3: And the ability to act from a place of actually understanding the hemodynamics and reacting quickly is the most important thing for a patient like this.
4: This is like really
1: fascinating. So like everything you're doing to manage the NF flactoid reaction and the shock uh, are probably working against you here. You, you're on a number of inotropic medicines that's going to just make that strong LV pump even harder and obstruct even more.
3: Exactly. And so in this patient, the treatment of choice in the setting was aggressive volume resuscitation, high volumes of normal saline fluid infusion, a rapid wean of epinephrine and norepinephrine. And the patient fortunately developed hemodynamic stability with these measures. There was a rapid improvement in the cardiac output and cardiac index, mean arterial pressure as well. The one other important thing to note in this patient who had obstructive physiology is that she was able to maintain her rhythm in normal sinus rhythm, which is critically important. These patients are so dependent on their atrial kick to increase their LV preload that maintaining sinus rhythm is so important in these patients.
1: Was it similar to managing shock and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where if she continued to be in shock despite volume repletion and winning down inotropes, would you have switched her over to phenylephrine, pure alpha agonist?
3: Absolutely. And so this patient was managed almost exactly how we would manage a patient with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy in shock. The key principles in managing suicide LV are really to maintain preload, increase afterload, and phenylephrine is the presser of choice given that it has pure alpha properties, maintaining AV synchrony, And avoiding beta agonists or inotropes. And if anything, considering treating with negative inotropes, such as beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, which, you know, seems counterintuitive in the setting of cardiogenic shock. But really, based on this patient's physiology, that's what's required.
2: Wow, uh, this is a fascinating discussion. And actually a similar case that I recently stumbled by was a case who had triple vessel severe CAD and underwent coronary artery bypass grafting. Went into the operation with not a normal ejection fraction. I don't quite remember how low it was, but it wasn't like ridiculously low. Like uh, that was a lost cause, but like more on the mild side, say like a 40% ejection fraction. And after the revascularization, his ejection fraction actually increased to over 75%. This patient had on The window of the heart it's blocked off when you have a recent sternotomy. But uh, with sun, we were able to see the LV and like almost all of the Optusine, again, which is for our listeners, a contrast that goes into LV and it's basically white, fills the blood up and it looks white. And basically all of that contrast was almost squeezed out, really showing us that this was a hyperdynamic state. The patient was hypotensive. We clearly realized that this was a, not a LV dysfunction cause for hypotension, even though again, in that patient, the cardiac index was incredibly low. Similar physiology where now this left ventricle was contracting much better. Better, but it, given that he had some septal hypertrophy, now revealed an obstructive situation very similar to the suicide LV. I've been honestly Googling this for the last 10 minutes. Like, where does that term come from? I understand what the suicide LV is, but it was do you have any idea of where the terminology suicide LV comes from? Because I have to say, it's pretty unclear when you tell somebody over that it's suicide LV. If you would say it's a hyperdynamic and obstructive LV or like similar terminologies that we use with hokum, I think it would be more understandable. But a lot of people are like, suicide LV? That sounds crazy. And and as we said earlier, it's not that the LV is giving up. It's quite on the other side. It's actually like overworking kind of thing.
3: Exactly. And that's actually an interesting question. I do not know the origin of the term suicide LV, but what we do know is that these patients, if not identified early and reversed quickly do tend to have poor outcomes. And so that is my experience with suicide LV. I don't know where the term actually came from.
1: Similar to Dan, after you guys submitted this case, I started Googling and trying to find suicide LV. And one of the intervention fellows, Niall Borges, sent me the, I think the original description of suicide LV post taver I think it was prior to that, it's been described in surgical literature, but this is just for the audience. It's a 2010 paper from catheterization and cardiovascular interventions by William Sue et al. And so that was, I think the original, the, the first time that the the term suicide LV was coined, but reading through the paper, they defined predictors of patients having dynamic intracavitary gradients post aortic valve replacement. And I think your patient really was a setup for this. And so the predictors that they talked about were essentially a small LV cavity with a small LV internal diastolic diameter, a hyperdynamic high ejection fraction, asymmetric wall thickness, high valve gradients to begin with, because it's probably just like the LV is used to having high gradients and then you take it away, the afterload as well as a small LV mass. And so just looking over the description of your patient's echo, it seems like, you know, someone is going to have suicide LV post aortic valve replacement. It's, it's your patient. And to recognize that now, um, I wouldn't have before this discussion, but now I think to recognize that the things to avoid would be things like dehydration and aggressively managing afterload with antihypertensive management's post-haver.
3: Exactly. And like you mentioned, there are a few isolated reports of this phenomenon in the setting of TAVR. Previously, it was described post-surgical aortic valve replacement, but risk factors really are small LVOT diameter, asymmetric septal hypertrophy. Female gender has actually been described as one of the risk factors for suicide LV as well. But really, the principles of management are completely different from what you would use for any other form of cardiogenic shock. And so these patients really require prompt recognition and treatment in order to try to reverse that pathophysiology. I also wanted to touch a little bit on protamine reaction. Have you guys ever seen a protamine reaction? This was my first time actually being faced with this situation.
2: Yeah, so actually there was a patient that we'll actually talk about on another CardioNerds episode coming along, coming your way, where a protamine reaction was, again, the trigger for another structural underlying problem. Because these protamine reactions, there's such a shift in the hemodynamics that patients who have an anatomical problem can get set up for something that lasts longer than the actual protamine reaction, which is what happened in this case. So I'm really, really fascinated to hear more about it.
3: Yeah. So Sergio, do you have any experience with protamine reaction?
2: Not personally and not before
4: this, but I did do a lot of reading after this case to figure out sort of what happens with the protamine. And so protamine is a low molecular weight cationic polypeptide that binds heparin. The clinical presentation usually varies from mild hypotension to profound shock, like in our patient's case, and it can be a major anaphylactoid reaction, which is very uncommon. One of the things that I found was very interesting was a risk factor is uh, anybody who's an insulin dependent diabetic. Apparently, NPH insulin contains small dose of protamine to prolong absorption and sensitizes patients to this.
3: That is actually fascinating because our patient is a type 2 diabetic on long-standing insulin therapy and was specifically on NPH insulin.
4: Incredible.
1: You know, I've also heard that uh, prior vasectomy is a risk factor for protamine reactions, but I'm assuming that was not a risk factor for your patient.
3: It was not, but that is actually really good to know. (laughs) And so guys, the final diagnosis for our case, suicide LV after TAVR, precipitated by the treatment of anaphylactoid reaction to protamine.
2: So interesting.
3: Mind-blowing, right? Wow,
2: this is... uh, Absolutely. So
1: fascinating. Honestly, this really is the first time I've heard about this and I've learned so much reading about it before this discussion and from your all of your teaching.
3: And so just to touch back on our patient, fortunately, she did really well post-procedurally after we were able to reverse her physiology. She was extubated on post-procedure day one, transferred to the floor on post-procedure day three, and discharged home on beta blocker therapy and is now doing well, has followed up at three months and has been doing great.
2: This is incredible. Just one point here. So we just said that it was precipitated by the treatment of the anafloid protamine reaction. And I wonder if it actually could have been triggered also because of the protamine reaction itself. You're temporarily vasodilating and all of a sudden you're really emptying that LV. And I wonder if that actually was the start of the hemodynamic compromise from the LV side, which may be why she went into PA so suddenly. And then again, the resuscitation efforts make this situation worse. This might have been the protamine reaction, again, low SVR, vasodilatation, emptying of the LV. We now develop the dynamic obstruction. The treatment, as you said, is now increasing the contractility, which further keeps our LV struggling and basically collapsing against itself, never able to fully recover, and to break the cycle You have to take a step back, as you guys so perfectly did, and basically, again, rule out all these other causes and quickly assert that, wow, we have to do the counterintuitive thing, slowing down the heart, relaxing the heart, filling it up with fluids, and then basically you have your resolution of this crisis. Really, kudos to the team.
3: Yes, absolutely. And we think that's exactly what happened. The drop in the SVR initially, the high dose epinephrine triggering that increased contractility, further precipitating that suicide physiology. And we were lucky to have all the necessary tools and information to be able to quickly make the decisions that were needed to reverse this patient's pathophysiology.
1: This case is just such a perfect example of why cardiology is awesome. Even if none of this happened, you're just stepping back. You've got a patient who's got severe symptomatic aortic stenosis. And just the management of that alone shows the progress that cardiology is making. Such a rapidly evolving field with advances in technology that are just so fast-paced. And then she unfortunately is met by a severe life-threatening complication, but you're able to use all of the multi-modality tools in your toolkit to very rationally go through the possible explanations for the complications. It's a high-stakes game, but the approach to it is so rational stepwise. The clinical reasoning was phenomenal. And I think it just brings a a smile to my face because this patient, you discharged her and she's better for it. So it just kudos to the team, kudos to all of you. And we'd love to hear your perspectives on why you all chose cardiology and what's what it's been like to train at UT Austin, Dallas Medical School.
4: I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think cardiology is one of the most elegant subspecialties in medicine. It's such a privilege to be able to take care of patients that are very sick and help them along their journey into getting better. And so the reason I chose cardiology, it maybe a very simplified reason. It honestly makes sense. When I think about it, there's an explanation for any sort of the disease processes that we deal with, and we're able to effectively intervene and help our patients, which is just a profound privilege and honor to be able to help people get better and feel better. And honestly, I think this case reflects greatly on on just the, the great training that we're receiving here at UT Austin. You know, if you had asked me when I started here, would you feel comfortable taking care of a patient like this? I would have said no. And having a program director like Dr. Clay Cawthon and just incredible physicians here that take the time to teach us about physiology, the hemodynamics, and really harp on the importance of evaluating all of the primary data has just honestly catapulted us and makes us feel like we're just learning at a rapid pace here. And that's why we chose a speedboat on the lake because we live life in the fast lane. So that's why I chose cardiology and that's what I love about I love I love that.
3: I have to second everything that was said by my dear friend and colleague, Sergio. I think that the ability to practice cardiology from a place of really understanding the physiology, pathophysiology, using these incredible multimodal tools that we have to perform thorough investigations, and then react in a way that really can save somebody's life. It is incredible. And to be able to put those pieces together in a supportive environment with incredible faculty from all over the country, from very well-renowned programs who have come here to really invest their time and energy into an educational environment that's supportive and comprehensive. We are very lucky to be here. And as Sergio mentioned, a year or two ago, there is no situation in which I would have felt confident in managing a patient like this. And here I am a few weeks ago in the ICU taking care of care of this patient with confidence, with the information that I need, with the ability to interpret the information that I need to provide the patient with the treatment that was needed at the time. It's really an incredible environment. And as Sergio mentioned, we do live life in the fast lane. That is what we enjoy here.
5: Thanks, Priya. And seeing both you and Sergio just get so comfortable with these very complex cases makes me so excited about this year. And that's one of the things that I love about cardiology and what drew me towards it is just the diversity of cases. Like you have these complex cardiogenic shock patients or these TAVR procedures, but then you have congenital disorders or EP. And I think the diversity is what really makes cardiology unique, where you really have a lot of different options that you can pursue. And what I loved about Dell here is exactly echoing what Sergio and Priya said is you get exposed to everything. And the faculty here are clearly here to support you and make you the best cardiologist you can be. I remember Dr. Cawthon, our program director, he actually took call with the first year fellows, the first night, so that we can be comfortable with these complex patients with cardiogenic shock, LVADS, ECMO, things that we haven't really had experience with before. And I, I remember you guys were telling me, Surgeon for that the first month, I think he took a call with you guys, right? Yeah, no, twice a week. <laughs>
6: twice a
1: week. Wow, that is so special. That is so special.
5: So I think that speaks volumes to the type of people that are drawn here and they really care about our success. And I think that's something very unique about our program. That's what I love about it here.
1: You guys, this conversation was so engaging that we didn't even realize that Dan fell off the boat two minutes ago.
4: (laughs) Hello! Dan! Oh no, Dan! Let's circle back back for him.
5: That's okay, that's okay. He's very (laughs) bored.
1: Priya, yeah, Sergio, Michael, thank you so much for sharing part of your Sunday with us. Thank you so much for the teaching and, and thank you a thousand times over for taking us along a ride in the fast lane through UT Austin. This was incredible
4: guys thank you so much for providing this platform for learning for educating for sharing our experiences honestly i love what you this program stands for and i think we need more of this in our education and in our
5: lives
3: absolutely thank you for listening to cardio nerds everywhere and for giving us a platform
5: thanks so much for having us
3: Hey guys, that was a great day out on the boat. Unfortunately, our co-fellow, Travis Benzing, wasn't able to join us, and we'd love to have him say hello to you all, so here he is.
6: Oh hey, Fellowship Fam. Sorry it took me a hot second to get here. Naturally, I had to apply some 100 SPF sunscreen and throw on my sunglasses. because, you know, as a future advanced imager, I prefer the darkness. So I guess I'll go ahead and introduce myself to the CardioNerds family as well. I'm Travis Benzing, one of the two PGY4 fellows here at UT Austin Dome Medical School, and I currently have an interest in advanced imaging, particularly cardiac CT and MR. So one of the questions that I get asked frequently is, why Austin? Is it my personal goal to keep Austin weird, as the kids say, or am I just a huge Matthew McConaughey fan? Who knows? What I do know is that the music scene here is second to none with the South by Southwest Music Festival, the ACL Music Festival. The food scene here is beyond eclectic with an emphasis on out-of-this-world brisket, and the outdoors are beckoning for attention with the Colorado River and adjoining lakes being the perfect setting for a post-call paddleboard session. All in all, I couldn't ask for a more welcoming and vibrant city to now call home. In that same vein, I couldn't ask for a more supportive and enthusiastic program to call my own. Originally being from South Carolina, my initial interest in this program was simply out of scouring the internet for programs across the South and Southeast that would not only satisfy my professional interest, but also my personal interest. From the second I met the faculty, the fellows, shout out to Sergio and Freya) and the staff, I knew that I had found, quote, my people. Every day that I come to work, and it pains me to call it work because it doesn't remotely feel like that, I not only cement my passion for cardiology, but also for building a program into something exceptional. The one-on-one education with faculty, the camaraderie with my co-fellows, and the depth of knowledge and expertise relayed to us daily is astounding to say the least. Speaking of knowledge and expertise, I think I see the boss man making his way down the boat ramp, so I can briefly introduce him as well, as I'm sure he will want to comment on this particular case. Dr. Mark Pirowitz functions daily as the CEO of the Ascension Seton Heart Institute and also serves as the chief of the division of cardiology at UT Austin Dell Medical School. His expertise and interest involves interventional cardiology as well as structural heart disease.
7: So without further ado, our invasive hemodynamics whiz, the great Dr. Perowitz. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Perwitz. I'm an interventional and structural heart cardiologist and also serve as chief of the Division of Cardiology at the University of Texas Dell Medical School here in Austin, Texas. Thanks for the opportunity to review and comment on this very interesting case presentation. First off, congratulations to Priya, Sergio, Mike for their excellent presentation, and more importantly, for their excellent care of this critically ill patient following transcatheter aortic valve replacement. This case provides an excellent opportunity to talk about the evaluation of shock, in addition to allowing a discussion on the potential very serious complications that can occur after TAVR. When presented with a patient with shock, particularly in those patients who present acutely or following a procedure such as in this case, it's important to take a systematic approach. The fellows did a great job in describing their evaluation of this patient. As Sergio stated earlier, one of the things that tracks us to cardiology is the physiology and the logic that is required in evaluating critically ill patients. This case exhibits the way in which physical examination, imaging, and hemodynamic measurements can assist in quickly arriving at the appropriate diagnosis and thereby correct treatment. So walking through this case, one possible etiology of shock following TAVR is hypovolemic shock. This results in inadequate preload, reduced stroke volume, and thereby decreased cardiac output. In this case, the most likely scenario would be acute bleeding, particularly at the access site. This is far less common now than it was now that there are smaller sheaths than with the initial devices. Physical examination, laboratory evaluation, and the fact that preload was not reduced upon hemodynamic measurements makes this unlikely in this scenario, however. Angiography was also performed in the OR and showed no extravasation at the site following removal of the TAVR sheath. Another complication which can result in shock and inadequate left ventricular preload would be in the setting of tamponade. This may result from perforation of the right ventricle when the temporary pacemaker is placed early in the procedure to treat bradyarrhythmias or to allow for rapid ventricular pacing during valve deployment. Pericardial tamponade can also rapidly occur with annular rupture. Obviously, this can quickly be ruled out with echocardiography, as was done in this case. This is usually catastrophic complication, and it's always something that we talk about in pre-procedural evaluation. There are a number of risk factors for annular rupture. One risk factor is moderate to severe left ventricular outflow tract calcification. Barbanti in 2013's Circulation article found an 11-fold increase in annular rupture in patients with moderate to severe LVOT calcification undergoing TAVR with balloon expandable valves. A recent article published in Jack Cardiovascular Interventions last month by Acuno showed an annular rupture rate of 2.3% in patients with moderate to severe LVOT calcification compared to 0.2% for those without. Additionally, patients treated with balloon expandable TAVR devices had a tenfold increased risk of annular rupture compared to those treated with self-expanding valves, something to keep in mind when choosing a valve. Patients with greater than 5 millimeters of length of LVOT calcification or encompassing greater than 10% of the circumference of the LVOT on CT are at higher risk. Obviously, annular rupture is potentially a lethal complication with mortality rates between 50 and 67% in a number of studies. Luckily, this was not a complication in our patient, however. Another possibility for shock in our patient is due to distributive shock and decreased afterload following administration of protamine. We routinely administer protamine at the time of taverous sheath removal. A recent single center study in July showed that routine administration protamine reduced the combined 30-day endpoint of mortality and major bleeding compared to standard therapy. Also reduced was hospital length of stay. In this case, protamine may have triggered an anaphylactic response, which caused marked vasodilatation, hypotension, and increased contractility. The patient initially was treated with steroids and epinephrine. As discussed previously, this may have adversely impacted our patient's hemodynamics. As was pointed out earlier, patients with previous exposure to MPH insulin have a higher incidence of adverse effects from protamine. Simplistically, in patients with shock, if it's not a preload or afterload issue, it's often an issue with myocardial performance. In this instance, the patient was found to have a cardiac output of 2.8 liters per minute with a cardiac index of 1.3. So obviously, there was an issue with decreased forward cardiac output. Certainly, one possibility post taver would be the result of coronary obstruction, particularly of the left main, resulting in myocardial depression. This, too, is something that's always discussed in our pre taver evaluation. Coronary heights less than 10 millimeters, a narrow aortic root of less than 28 millimeters at the sinuses of Valsalva, and native aortic leaflet length, particularly if longer than the sinus height, are predictors of coronary obstruction. Usually, this occurs immediately after implantation with an incidence of about 04 to 0.6%, but delayed coronary occlusion has also been reported and is estimated to occur in about 0.2% of TAVR patients. Risk factors for late occlusion include self-expanding valves and valve-in-valve procedures. One-year mortality for patients with coronary occlusion post-TAVR is around 45%. Certainly, pre-procedural planning is important with placing a wire in a stent in at-risk vessels prior to TAVR. Again, in this patient, angiography is performed following valve implantation, ruling this out initially, and then EKG and echocardiogram in the CCU were used to assess ST segment changes in wall motion abnormalities to help exclude late coronary occlusion. Another possible etiology of shock post-haver is acute aortic insufficiency. Won't spend much time discussing this, but it was quickly ruled out with echo simultaneous hemodynamic measurements of aortic and LV pressure and also by aortic root angiography during the procedure. Finally, shock post-haver may result from obstruction, either LVOT or intracavitary obstruction, the so-called suicide LV. This initially was seen in post-surgical AVR patients who developed profound hemodynamic changes following AVR. It was first reported by Sue in 2010 following TAVR. Since then, there has been relatively little in the literature other than the case reports. The pathophysiology is thought to be the result of marked reduction in afterload following TAVR, which results in hypercontractility and creation of an intracavitary gradient. As pointed out earlier, there are a number of risk factors for this, including a small left ventricular volume, very high pre-procedural aortic valve gradients, asymmetric septal hypertrophy, and a small left ventricular outflow tract dimension on pre-procedural CT imaging. As noted in this patient, the left ventricular end-diastolic dimension was 3.8 centimeters by echo prior to TAVR. These hemodynamic changes may occur acutely following TAVR, or may be more delayed and exacerbated by volume depletion, withdrawal of negative inotropic medications following the procedure, or treatment of hypertension with vasodilators. In this case, it was likely triggered by protamine reaction. Treatment consists of increasing preload with volume resuscitation and avoidance or discontinuation of positive inotropic medications. Short-term negative inotropic medication may also be helpful, and increasing afterload with direct alpha-1 agonists such as neosynephrine may also improve hemodynamics. In refractory instances, cardiopulmonary support may be necessary. Finally, it's important to maintain AV synchrony in these patients as they are extremely preload dependent. Atrial fibrillation or ventricular pacing can markedly worsen hemodynamics. We had one previous patient who had developed severe hypotension, dropping their systolic blood pressure 70 points with ventricular pacing in this setting. In summary, transcatheter valve replacement has markedly changed the way in which we care for patients with severe aortic stenosis. Improvements in technique and equipment have reduced complication rates, but a number of severe life-threatening issues can occur following valve deployment. A systematic, organized approach utilizing physical exam, imaging, and evasive hemodynamics is essential when assessing these patients with shock post-haver. Don't forget the possibility of suicide LV as one possible etiology. Thanks much for listening.
3: And now for a message from our program director, one of our most amazing people here at UT Austin, one of the most incredible people that I've ever met, and an advanced heart failure transplant cardiologist here at our very own medical school. We wanted to introduce Dr. Clay Coffin for a message about our program.
0: Hi, this is Clay Cawthon. I'm an assistant professor of internal medicine at the Dell Medical School in Austin, Texas. I am an advanced heart failure and transplant doctor. And I guess most important, at least to me, and brings me the most joy in my life from a professional standpoint is I am the program director of the Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship at the University of Texas, Austin. So one of the things that I looked at coming out of fellowship is what's going to be my ideal job. I love teaching. I love being immersed in a very rigorous clinical environment. And so I looked at academic positions and then I looked at private practice positions. And then we heard that the University of Texas is starting a new medical school. And one of my buddies who was a cardiothoracic surgeon who I trained with at Cleveland, he called me down. I was like, you've got to come see this program. And when I came down here, I saw literally that there won't be another opportunity like this for decades and decades, where you're literally going to be building a medical school, building a curriculum. And that's essentially what we've done over the past years. When I look at the faculty that I've been working with, Dr. Chris Heinzman, Dr. Peter Monteleone, Mark Pirowich, George Rogers, these docs who have been in different environments, private as well as academic environments over the years. And we started talking about a cardiology fellowship What we did was we wanted to bring all of the greatness that we had at our own training and then slough off the stuff that we didn't need. Then using the experience of my older partners of what training did we not get? And what training are you not going to get as a cardiology fellow in just the standard training environment? And so we created a curriculum. It's a four pillar curriculum where there's a clinical Education, a research education, a quality, and then an advocacy. From a clinical standpoint, what we wanted is enough fellows so that they are involved in every case, but not too many fellows so that it diluted out. So, our fellows last year did over 400 casts as first years, 400 echoes. We have one fellow on rotation. And the other thing was, is how we treat. Call sometimes looks like service. In our mind, it is a bolus of cardiology. It is where you're going to learn how to treat things that you've never seen before. The other part that we all complained about when we came out, none of us really knew how to treat the post-surgical patient. So part of one of the things that our fellows do is that they actively manage the post-surgical patients. One of the most humbling things is post-operative vasoplegia. And the other thing that we're all seeing is the treatment and management of cardiogenic shock is shifting from inotropes to more mechanical. Our fellows treat and manage all of our patients on VA ECMO, the VV ECMOs who have RV, as well as the impellas as well. And so it's really brought a different skill set that we're teaching and which was evident by the case that you listened today. From a research standpoint, we have the very traditional where our first years are going to be working on case reports, also review chapters, and then build into their own research projects. The other thing that's a little bit unique is that all of our fellows are PI on one of our industry-sponsored trials. So they are involved with the entire onboarding, where they are looking at performance. They're going to be looking at our patient population to say, is this a good trial to bring in? Are we going to be able to advance care with this? And looking at it from, again, from the legal standpoint all the way to the clinical standpoint where you're actually recruiting in. Again, this is a skill set that I didn't get when I was going through training. Quality, we all know that how we are reimbursed, how we are looking at medicine is changing to quality. How do we make it so that our patient reported outcomes are actually what the patients want? I want to feel better. I want to live longer. And so. What we've designed here is that our fellows will be involved with, it's something called the distinction track, where they will take, actually Michael does it next week, a one-week course that's given by our quality institute that will just look at how do you look at providing quality from an individual provider standpoint to also doing it as a system standpoint. Each class will work on their own quality initiative, but then in addition to that, every time you're on a different rotation, you're on all of the quality boards during that rotation. For example, when they're on advanced heart failure, they sit in with all of our QAPIs, our quality assessment and improvement initiatives, so that they can see how we're doing this at a system level, which is completely different than doing a fishbone M&M. It's actually saying, okay, this is a problem. How do we work at it from a system standpoint? How do we actually allocate resources to that to fix it, which is completely different? Because, again, we aren't taught how to think that way during our training. And then the last pillar is our advocacy. One thing that I think that we do well is we take care of patients. But one thing that as physicians, we don't take care of ourselves. So there there is this MD wellness that is a part of their curriculum over the three years. We're developing this with all of our fellowships so that all the fellows, the GI fellows, the palliative care fellows will participate in this wellness program and to help us with balancing work life. And I tell you, I've got three kids and it's tough when you're on call and you're going to pick up your daughter from ballet and trying to juggle these things and not be stressed out so that I can be that best father, so that I can be that best physician during those time periods because that's going to happen. The other thing in terms of advocacy, we don't speak up for ourselves. Living in Austin, Texas, we have the Capitol just right down the road. So when the state Senate comes back in session, what our fellows are going to be doing, we're going to be talking to the lobbyists. We're going to be talking to our state representatives on how can we provide care to our patient population in central Texas? What can we do? Another part of us learning how to do that is that all of the fellows will attend the ACC legislative workshop that occurs in D.C. This year It will be virtual every fall. It's a fabulous time where Sergio went last year. He was able to meet with our state representatives. And and again, it puts us in that mindset that yes, we are a steward of medicine, but also we are a steward of our patients as well and making sure that our states and government are providing everything that they can. Then also just on the patient advocacy level, we are aggressively looking for projects that will help patients who are at risk, that are doing projects that will help Close the gap of healthcare disparities, which we know is just rampant within our healthcare system. And the, the last part of the advocacy is something that we're very excited about: is our global health. Now, things may change because of what's going on with the pandemic, but there's a global health institute that's at the University of Texas that we're working very closely with, as well as with one of our attending, Shanti And what we will be able to do is during our third year. The fellows will be able to spend two to four weeks either in a hospital system that's in Africa or one that's in Mexico. And again, bringing that full circle to where, yes, we're here to take care of patients locally within our office, but we also have a greater need to help patients, not only in Texas, not only in the rest of the United States, but also globally. So that's kind of our curriculum in a nutshell. Wow, what an amazing case.
1: A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the Cardian Nerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the Cardian Nerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Rizzo for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Avalon Song, and Bibin Berghese are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and
4: split. Dallas mentioned tacos, but I think the best tacos in Texas are in Austin. No,
1: it's a little, it's a little controversial, though. I we
3: mean, want, uh, We it... don't want to throw shade at anybody else's tacos, but no. we, we have a very strong opinion about our own Austin tacos. <laughs>
4: Yeah, okay. and, I and having lived in Dallas great. and now here, I can assure you the tacos here are, are significantly better.
2: I, I Honestly, I just uh, swallowed a sriracha-covered pizza bagel, so that's why I'm
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> clearing my throat for the tacos. All right.